Hello and welcome to Access Partnerships Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Gideon Lett, your host today and a senior advisor at Access Partnership. Today we're diving into how business leaders think about human rights. It's long been the role of governments to police human rights within their borders and around the world. However, as the roles of government, civil society, and business leaders are rebalanced to adapt to shifting stakeholder expectations, the human rights paradigm looks far different today. I'm very pleased to have Lene Wendland as our guest today. Lene leads the Business and Human Rights section at the United Nations, a role she's held for the last 19 years. Lene played a critical role in the development of the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which celebrates its 10th anniversary in June of this year. She also launched and oversees BTEC, a relatively new unit that considers and applies the guiding principles in the technology space. Lene, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, I'd like to just zoom out a bit for our listeners. Um, can you tell us a bit about how human rights are defined in the global context of the UN, particularly given the diverse geopolitical and ideological perspective is represent, represented by your stakeholders? Thank you. Well, human rights are actually pretty well defined. I mean, we have the various treaties and conventions, but really the Universal Declaration on human rights that dates back from 1948 is still the main and leading document. And that document has been then elaborated, the different rights in the declaration has been elaborated in various other treaties. Um, so we do have a pretty clear human rights framework that was very much um, developed in, in reaction to the atrocities of World War II. So there's an emphasis on dignity, respect, and non-discrimination as, as one would, would expect. And in fact, the Universal Declaration has been reaffirmed by all members of the United Nations um, in 1992. So again, this, the framework has been kept um, modern, if you wish. Um, and really, a number of the issues that are covered there are the issues that fill our news feeds every day. It's, it's non-discrimination, it's dignity, respect, rights of workers, rights of of um, to to decent uh, living conditions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. There can be big problems when it comes to implementation of the standards and different geographic regions maybe emphasize some rights more than others, but really it's at that level there is, is sort of maybe lack of support. Um, but when it comes to understanding what human rights are, it's, it's pretty clear. As I mentioned, I guess in the intro, um, you know, UN human rights have historically focused on the roles of governments in promoting and protecting uh, human rights. We're now coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the, the Guiding Principles, which um, transfers a great deal of responsibility to business leaders. Um, can, what can you tell us about this shift, um, the impetus behind it, and how the Guiding Principles have been put into practice? Yeah, no, and I think it is a very good question to understand where what the evolution has been. As I mentioned, the, the modern human rights system dates back to 1948 and was naturally focused on protecting people against states because we had seen what could happen. Um, so uh, that was the emphasis. And in the first decades after the Second World War, it was was about our states doing what they're meant to be doing to, to protect, um, respect, and fulfill the rights of people. But of course, um, as is the case now, was also the case um, in the decades after 1948, that states are not always willing or able to um, to meet their human rights obligations. So in the night, starting sort of in the 1970s with the globalization, 
um, and the growing impact, the transnational flows of finance and, and supply chains, there was a shift in, in expectations, um, partly because one could see that companies actually can and do have an impact on human rights, both positively but also negatively, and part of based on that um, sense of disappointment in, in terms of states not doing their job. So we saw in the 1990s increasingly non-governmental organizations would, would start campaigning against companies. So Nike, those of you who are old enough will remember the the Just Do It picture of the Nike with a little girl sitting um, uh, in front of a, a sewing machine. So uh, accusations of, of Nike that outsourcing your production doesn't mean that you can outsource your responsibility for how your products is made. And that led to a quite an intense debate at the international level about whether the human rights framework that we have developed since 1948 was still fit for purpose. And uh, because it didn't address directly what were the roles and responsibilities of business um, and this very polarized debates where business said, well, we we have no problem with human rights, but it's for, for states. And all we have to do is respect the laws where we operate. And if they're not there or if they're not enforced, that's really not our problem. And then on the other side of the debate were civil society organizations saying, well, because you can and do impact on human rights and because states are not doing what they're meant to be doing, you have to take over. So that was really the sort of in the early 2000s where, where these kind of debates came to a head and, and states which had sit on the fence for many years um, in this debate in 2005 finally realized that they they this was a, an issue that needed a little bit more of a careful um, approach, and they um, outsourced the problem essentially um, by asking the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan at the time to appoint a special representative to essentially sort this thing out. How do we update the human rights system to reflect this new reality that that companies may cross different borders, and it's no longer just member states that have the full sort of Authority, but at the same time, they are still the main signatories of, of human rights conventions. So, John Ruggie, Professor John Ruggie from Harvard University, was appointed by Kofi Annan to be the special representative, and he then led a six year process of very extensive consultations with companies and governments and civil society and others from all regions of the world to then develop this um, set of principles that, that is now known as the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights that were presented and, and unanimously endorsed at the United Nations in 2011, which was very significant um, because it was not only all member states, so the usual divisions that happens at the UN, really all member states came together to say this is the right framework, this is how we articulate the right balance between what is the responsibilities of, of business and what is the responsibility of, of companies. Um, and similarly, so it wasn't only member states, what was also significant was that leading business organizations, so the International Chamber of Commerce, the International Organization of Employers, a number of major global companies, uh, investors and others, also expressed publicly that they endorsed the guiding principles, as did Amnesty International and a number of the leading human rights organizations. So it really was quite significant that, that at least now, for the first time since 1948, there was a global framework, an authoritative global framework that articulated the roles and responsibilities um, of business, but also 
maintained states as having core obligations, but really articulated the, the responsibilities in business. So that's what we're celebrating the 10th anniversary because it is actually a, a major milestone in the evolution of, of the human rights um, uh, framework. It's really amazing to uh, achieve that level of consensus among those diverse stakeholders. Uh, but in practice, have you noticed any kind of interesting trends with regard to sectors that have outshined others or kind of any geographic or temporal disparities um, over, over the course of your, your tenure here? Sure. Um, this is, um, if, we, if we think about as a new standard, essentially a new global standard being developed in six years in UN terms, that's, that's very quick, um, let me put it this way. So, but of course, as Jan Rogge said when he presented uh, the guiding principles to the Human Rights Council, that having the framework was only the end of the beginning. Um, and uh, the, the, the real work started with um, trying to get the, the implementation, the uptake, getting companies to, to use the framework, to do the human rights due diligence that is embedded there, but also getting governments to increasingly pass new policies and regulations that, that would foster business to, to do the right thing when it comes to human rights. So it's obviously not something that transition didn't happen after one year, after two years. Um, but what we can say in terms of trends, that initially it's clear that while the guiding principles reflected consultations that were global, um, in the beginning it was mostly, after Basics and still is, I guess, um, but it was, was mostly Western companies. And initially it was from the different industry sectors, so apparel or extractive companies that had been in the trenches of, of the kind of tension that I described earlier, where they had been targeted by civil society campaigns. Nike was one. There was Shell in Nigeria, oil spills, um, mining companies in Papua New Guinea, whatever, whatever the case uh, might be. But those sectors who had sort of been in the, as I said, in the trenches for longer, they were ahead of this because they had had to deal with these issues and in fact had informed very much how the guiding principles had developed because of course the guiding principles were informed by by their experiences so but increasingly we have seen that other sectors are developing awareness of the guiding principles are starting to take up um, the food and agricultural uh, sector for example often following I mean many media exposures or, or, or campaigns we saw Years ago, there was a big attention to the Thai fishing industry. And of course, that was not only about Thai companies, it was about international companies or international companies who were sourcing fish, fish from the Thai fishing industry. So all these things, again, the, the uptake reflects where exposure has been, where questions have been asked, and where in the supply chain a different company is, is placed and whether it's a consumer-facing company, they're obviously more sensitive to campaigns, to boycotts, to media exposure. Whereas if you are a mid-sized business-to-business company, you can fly under the, um, the sort of the, the radar more easily. Um, when it comes to the tech sector, which we'll talk about in more detail shortly, um, they were, of course, ten years ago. It was a different. It was a different world, really, when it comes to tech. Um, but in terms of that sector's um, entry into the space, I guess one could say that it's 
it was really initially around the, the manufacturing, so the Apple supply chain, Foxconn, there were some big you New know, York time exposures around that, and there was in other parts of the tech sector as well, it was more the, the hardware. And then the the, the trends um, obviously have moved to a big focus on, on online content, uh, social media companies that raises a different range of human rights um, challenges. So it's been trends, it's, it's sort of evolved from more the traditional sectors into other sectors. Um, it also, the trends have also reflected how governments have reacted because, of course, governments, we need to always make sure that governments stay in the in the picture because they really cannot abdicate uh, their responsibilities in this. And we've seen in com- uh, countries where governments have passed, um, have developed national action plans on business and human rights using the guiding principles as a framework. We're seeing that increasingly in a number of countries around the world, starting in Europe, but now a number of countries in Latin America, in Asia, some in, in Africa as well, that triggers national discussion. So companies in those countries where these processes are ongoing, either in response to policy discussions, exposures, regulatory developments, are coming into the into the space as well and, and, and adopting, um, starting to implement the guiding principles during the, the adopting the guiding principles as what it essentially is, namely a risk management framework. So a framework for identifying and mitigating uh, human rights risks that occur as a result of the business. When you, you mentioned uh, a minute ago due diligence, which really makes me uh, think about the, the big trend of ESG uh, accountability and, and transparency. And certainly a lot of that is focused on, you know, climate and sustainability, but there is a, a huge uh, human rights element to that as well. Uh, what role do you think the framework has played in um, kind of informing, uh, you know, what businesses think about in terms of ESG and what investors and customers and uh, employees think about? Uh, and what it, what role will the ESG trend have on um, proliferation of the principles? Yeah, I think the ESG trends are obviously really important, and I think the guiding principles and the other frameworks that have been developed, for example, in the OECD, the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises, which has a, a human rights chapter that is basically cut and paste from the guiding principles. So those, the guiding principles and the associated frameworks fill out the S factor of ESG, because that we've, we've heard from many of the investors we've engaged with over the years, also during the process of developing the guiding principles, is that the sort of environmental, they were like, this is more measurable, we know we can, again, they didn't say that necessarily when we started talking about environmental impact, but that was a field that was more mature. And I think it's very clear that the the guiding principles and the, the, the various guidance and tools that exists around filling what that means in practice for companies is really helping investors in the assessment of the, the social part, the S part of, of the ESG investment. And there is still, um, I think we do lack clarity around proper matrix for, for reporting, for assessment, for how you evaluate performance, and there are a lot of very good initiatives on the way to try and credible initiatives. There are also some less credible ones um, to try to to equip 
investors in a proper assessment of what is the ESG performance in a company that they are considering. I should say, though, that um, that ESG investing is not necessarily the same as, as human rights investment. I've, I've heard that the other day um, in the context of, of, of climate and where this um, leading investor said, you know, you should be aware that when you're talking environmental, ESG investment doesn't say, are you preventing climate change? It can also be how are you mitigating um, climate change? And obviously, we would much prefer that ESG investing goes in 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 the, in the direction of preventing and mitigating, as opposed to um, or, or in the in this in the direction of prevention, rather than just saying, well, here is how we can invest and and mitigate the the, the adverse impact from um, the cost of, of climate change. But very important, and I think overall, I mean, we've done a lot of work with and, and in relation to the financial sector because it really is such a key driver on of, of how business I mean access to capital obviously can can drive behavioral change in companies. Um, and we've seen some some really positive uh, developments of groups of banks getting together to try to grapple with what this means for them to their responsibility under the guiding principles in terms of the expectations they can set vis-a-vis their clients and and we've seen yeah, for example, in, in, in the Netherlands, the Dutch banking covenant, where banks and their stakeholders have come together to try to articulate what this means for them and what the sort of managing the social expectations um, based on these normative standards that are surrounding So there's a lot of positive trends, um, clearly, <laughs> because the glass a little bit um, can be half full depending on how you wake up in the morning. But um, I think it's important to really say very loud and clear that a lot has happened that wouldn't have happened. At the same time, it's also very important to stress that a lot still needs to be needs to be done to get to scale and get it where it's the market that really rewards good performance in the space and that the risk management framework make it more clear where the human rights risks um are also business risks, and I think that's that. Obviously, that's um, we still have some some way to go in terms of having market um, full market uh, reward for for those who who take the responsibility seriously. Well, and and as you acknowledged earlier, uh, so much has changed in the last decade since the guiding principles were implemented. Digital transformation, perhaps chief among them and the emergence of digital rights as human rights. Uh, how has your work adapted during this time to keep pace with technology-enabled innovation? Yeah, so we as an office, so the UN Human Rights Office, we have sort of two complementary streams in relation to technology, both the sort of broader, what we call the broader tech and human rights um, stream, so where we approach tech can both be a really important tool for human rights work, and we're working with a number of companies um, who are helping us do better human rights work using technology. So tech as a tool for human rights, but also tech as a challenge for human rights. It's clear and obviously um, it's very much in the public debate. And you mentioned um, when we discussed the, the Facebook um, oversight board's decision around content that should go up and, and or not, um, that there are some, some inherent human rights challenges associated with a number of the, the products and services of, of the tech sector. So that's the, that's the sort of overarching, um, frame and, and the human rights framework. We, um, are, are very clear that it's, we have the, the underlying standards for what 
what the rights that people should enjoy offline and online. Um, so those who think that the digital revolution requires a whole new set of standards, we would take issue, but rather say, let's try to find out how one can implement these standards that have stood the test of time, as I said, since 1948, um, instead of trying to have bespoke solutions to technologies that might well change next year or evolve. And so it could sort of be, let's, let's use the frameworks that we have. And that's what we've tried in the, in the project that I'm, I'm leading um, as part of our work with the BTEC project. So that's short for Business and Human Rights and Technology. So it's really aimed to apply the lens of the UN guiding principles to the challenges of um, uh, digital technologies. And, and I should hasten to add that it's not that we don't recognize all the good things that technology can bring. We very much do. As I said, tech as a tool, we are both for human rights, but also for for society more generally. Um, but it's the, it's the clear, our clear position that you can only realize the positive potential um, of digital technologies if you're effectively able to manage the risks that are associated with them. There are no offsets in human rights. You can't say, well, because we do well here, it doesn't matter that we actually violate and abusing the rights of others. So, so using, again, not reinventing wheels, but saying how can we, within some of the core challenges that are presented um, by digital technologies in the tech sector, can we have a process where we engage with companies, with governments, with civil society, key stakeholders, affected um, people? Can we try to come up with some agreed, acceptable ways of responding to the challenges using the frameworks that we have, using the underlying human rights in the, in the Universal Declaration and the associated treaties, but taking the, the human rights due diligence lens um, uh, of, of the UN guiding principles and the, the need for, for governments to have what we call the, the guiding principles called the smart mix of measures. Um, so both regulatory and voluntary, both policy incentives and, and more sort of stick and carrot approach. Um, what, what works? What is it that will be effective? We can't assume that Oh, we must just, as it was maybe in the last decade, sort of more or less affair that, that everyone sort themselves out. We've seen that that hasn't really been effective. And likewise, if you come in and very ham-fisted regulation, that in itself um, poses a huge, uh, potentially poses huge threats to human rights. So it's really through that, what is it that will work? Um, and we have identified some core priority areas in the project that we are exploring through that lens. So one is where the human rights risks are are so closely associated to the business model of, of a company. It's not about saying a certain business or some company should not be in business. I mean, we are not saying that, but, but recognizing that as human rights were not at the core when the sector developed by and large, there are some of the some business models that just have very inherent human rights risks associated. So what are the mitigation? What can one do using that lens to try to 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 change internal processes or, or tweak or or change basically? Um, and also human rights due diligence where the human rights risks are at the end use, where you have a product or service that are not inherently bad, but is being used. What is it you can do to, as a company, and what are your responsibilities to ensure that 
your products and services are not used to in a way that that harm people, um, etc. So we we have the project where we are using um, this lens, and we have very good support and engagement from a number of the leading companies, as well as a number of the the key governments. The U.S. government, I should say, is is a very strong supporter and promoter of the UN guiding principles and and have developed excellent tools uh, most recently on on human guidance uh, on human rights due diligence for for sale of, of, of surveillance uh, technology. What are the kinds? So again, a government actually doing what government is meant to do, namely govern and provide appropriate. Um, in this case, guidance to to companies so they know what the parameters are for how they um, they should act in line with, with these global standards. I, I guess on, on on that note, you know, this is a a, a timely conversation, as you mentioned. Uh, the Facebook Oversight Board uh, very recently made their substantial ruling about uh, President Trump, or former President Trump, uh, which I know other world leaders have commented on in the context of the right to free expression. And even more recently, I think yesterday, uh, the LGBTQ uh, rights group GLAAD uh, released its first ever social media safety index, uh, which cites the guiding principles more than once, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, but they, they deemed um, you know, the social media platforms to be unsafe for LGBTQ users. Um, I guess in that context, um, you know, how do you rate tech's job policing itself and protecting human rights and user safety and as you also referenced, um, you know, recognizing the fine line between avoiding harm and realizing technology's full potential impact, what role do you see governments ultimately play? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very big, um, very big question. The taking the lens of the guiding principles, it's governments have a clear role. I think the smart mix of measures is the is the buzzword there and, and we see increasingly com- uh, countries in Europe, the European Union itself will is, is will come out in, in, in July with a, um, a draft directive for mandatory human rights due diligence for all companies. So that would also affect companies in the in the tech sector using the lens of the guiding principles. Um, but there's obviously also a lot of, as I mentioned, policy um, policy guidance that is necessary. Um, for for society, either individual, national governments, or in the case of the European Union, regional bodies that say, well, it's actually a lot easier if we set broader standards instead of every country in in the EU, as is almost happening at the moment, where every week there's a new country that says we are now going to do our mandatory human rights due diligence laws, and, and companies are understandably saying, well, hang on. This doesn't really work for us because we it sort of makes such an uneven playing field. So I think regulation and policy is absolutely necessary. At the same time, I think it is very important to recognize that we don't live in a world where, if we ever did, but where you would have a national government that will have full and effective control of everything that goes on. Um, I mean, both because of the scale, particularly in this sector and the global nature, and until we have the perfect policy and regulatory environment, it, it is really important that companies step, step up and take responsibility for their impact. And that is exactly what the guiding principles intended to do, was to fill that gap where governments are unable or unwilling to enforce human rights obligations on companies. So to say that, oh, I mean, I, I 
don't want to hear sort of we, we don't have a very um, sort of formal position on the is it the oversight board is it good or bad but I just want to say I think if company takes serious efforts to deal with the problems they have I think we should meet them there and say okay is that good enough can we do more can we do better any company can, any organization can. No organization is perfect, including, I should say, the one I represent. But it's it, it, it's not for me sufficient to say, oh, this is illegitimate just because it was set up by Facebook. Because I don't think we have a good enough answer to say, well, then what should we do? On the one hand, we're saying, you know, you are posing all these risks and we want to have the perfect regulation to, you know, when you win. But until that time... <laughs> Um, what do we do in the meantime? Um, and this thing of, oh, but that's the oversight board is paid for by, by Facebook. I also find a, a less compelling argument if you look at the, you know, what are the measures to put in place to ensure independence? Because you can also say, well, who else was going to pay for it? You know, it's not as if, you know, it, it's, and we've ended, this is a, a, an issue that comes up in the business and human rights domain uh, very often where, there is an expectation that companies under the guiding principles set up effective grievance mechanisms to allow those who have been harmed or allege that they've been harmed to, to complain. And again, we can say, okay, in the ideal world, there would be perfect regulatory bodies or courts to, to deal with that problem. But in many countries, that's just not the reality. So are we having something that is maybe formally imperfect, I and mean, the guiding principles set up very clear effectiveness criteria for what is credible and what is not. So it's not as if you can just set up a mechanism and say, okay, we say it's good enough, and then everyone should take that at face value. We do have standards to assess. So looking at an ecosystem of remedy or grievance mechanisms of different institutions that can play a valuable role um, to address, including the complaints from people from the LGBTI community, who I would very much agree that it, with the assessment that online is a very unsafe space for, for them, and which is why it's so important that that companies, until the perfect mechanisms from for state regulation comes to be, and again, I'm not quite saying that pigs will fly, but it's you know it's not going to happen tomorrow that you engage in what is what are credible efforts to respond to those threats and that companies engage with stakeholders from that community that are at risk to find out, not self-define what is effective, but engage with affected stakeholders to say, what, how can we protect, how can we design our systems? And that's all, again, baked in, in the guiding principles that it's not just for companies to say, we respect human rights and you just have to take our word for it. It is this really qualitative process also of engagement that that is the is the, the standard and is the, the bar. Um, and that complemented complementary um, with the with this, the government responsibilities or with governments um, groups of governments' responsibilities and duties. So we talk in the guiding principles of distinct but complementary duties and responsibilities of states and, and companies. So 10 years is a big hallmark. Um, and so, you know, looking back on, on your work 10 years and beyond, uh, how do you rate the success of the guiding principles so far? And 
Uh, I know as we go into next month, uh, we'll learn more about the pathway forward for the next 10 years. Like what's your crystal ball as to, um, you know, what we hope to accomplish uh, moving forward? Yeah, as I said, when we look back on the 10 years, I said that really is where the glass half full, half empty things come in because, again, a lot of progress, but a lot of um, uh, work still to be done. And I should give a shout out to another UN sort of sister uh, initiative from the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights that have had this the past year, the UN Guiding Principles at 10 project, and they will come out and present in June to the UN Human Rights uh, Council a stock-taking report where they have had input and consulted over the past years on where what has happened and where are we now. Um, so that will be an important report to, to look out for. And then they will publish as well a roadmap for the next 10 years. Um, so uh, from, from our perspective, um, I think there are some very clear trends that we will see more of. I think the mandatory human rights due diligence, that is a, a trend that has left the station and companies better get on with it because otherwise they, they are going to be behind that trend. So I think that's very clear. I think um, what we have seen increasingly and what we will see is the expansion of the the names of the guiding principles to different types of organizations with economic activities. I mean, we have already, I mean, obviously companies, but government procurement departments applying the framework of risk, human rights, risk management, human rights due diligence to their purchasing of, um, of procuring of, of goods and services, development finance institution, International Finance Corporation, a number of the big, and I mean, that's a big financial actor. I think it's estimated $11.9 trillion a year just in development finance. So if in their safeguards policies and in their investment decisions, these banks increasingly apply the names of the bank principles, which a number of them are beginning to do, I think that will can have a real impact in, in, in the market and on development. Um, we've seen sports governing bodies, FIFA, uh, the World Football um, Federation governing body has adopted the human rights policy, adopted uh, respect uh, according to the guiding principles in their statutes. Why? Because FIFA is a football organization? Yes, but FIFA is very much an economic actor, obviously. So I think that that, that trend is very clear that we see the logic of it's not making every organization into a human rights organization, obviously not, but it is recognizing that Every in the any every economic actor as they go about doing their business need are expected to identify and prevent and mitigate any human rights risks that may be associated with it. Um, so I think that's a very positive positive trend that I and, and governments are stepping up increasingly as well. And then of course there is the tech, which will um, inform already do, but we'll continue to inform everyone everything we do. And it's therefore more and more imperative that that the human rights risks get effectively managed. And we are very encouraged by the by the the, the response from the number of the leading tech companies to the work and their embracing of working with us in in developing guidance and, and practical, you know, having and understanding of what is what is feasible and, and how to do it. Um, so I think that's that would be one of the crystal ball for what it's worth. Well, uh, thank you, Lanny, for this fascinating conversation. I know you've been at this a while and can take great pride in all you've achieved over the last two decades. 
I know we at Access Partnership look forward to continuing our work uh, with clients to navigate some of these important issues and look forward to an open dialogue with you and your team as the next chapter of Tech and Human Rights Unfolds. Thank you very much and thanks for the opportunity and I look forward to staying in touch.